reading from the Acts of the Apostles, beginning in the second chapter. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was, was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. The word of the Lord. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this evening we are celebrating what is in many ways the denouement of the Christian year. If you remember back this far in Advent, we looked in two directions. We looked backward to Christ's incarnation and forward to his imminent return. And then for 12 days, we celebrate with some ambivalence the feasts of Christmastide. We celebrate the Feast of the Incarnation, but it's immediately followed by the martyrdom of Stephen and the massacre of the Holy Innocents. And we are made to realize and recognize that Christ's arrival isn't simply cute, it is crisis. It's judgment. And the Herods of the world will stop at nothing to silence the God-man before he even has a chance to speak. In Epiphany, we see what the proper response to Christ should be. Leaving the land of our birth and being drawn toward the light of his illumination, gathering at his creche to worship him with precious gifts and incense as the Magi did. Throughout the season of Epiphany, we get flashes of Christ's divinity. The intuition, to worship, the intuition to worship him is corroborated as we see in his baptism the spirit descends like a dove and the father speaks in loving approval of his son. And we encounter at every turn the troubling conclusion that this man Jesus is not just a man. That he is Christ. And yet this God Christ is not just divine he is the God-man. He is both. In the season of Lent, then, we are given time to process this realization. God coming in the flesh might be the worst news, or it might be the best news. We are forced to look at our own histories and assess, are we Herods, or are we Magi? Are we threatened by Christ's arrival, or do we welcome him with worshipful joy? 
Lent, much like Advent, is a season of preparation, and this time, rather than the Incarnation, we are led to Holy Week, to Christ's promises to his followers as they sat at table for the last time, the institution of the Eucharist, to Christ's passion and death and his glorious resurrection. And then for 40 days, we celebrate Christ being with his people until he ascends to the Father as head of his mystical body, the church. So last Sunday, we celebrated the Feast of the Ascension. And this evening, we celebrate the descent of the Spirit and the birth of the church. It's been suggested by people much smarter than me that we could look at God's history with the world as a five-act play. And depending on who you read, there's different titles for the five acts, but uh, one guy came up with an alliterated version, so he wins. And the five acts of the play of history are creation, covenant, Christ, church, and consummation. I'm not preaching through all of those, just so you know. This is not a five-point sermon. Without setting up unhelpful bifurcations within the Trinitarian life, I do want to suggest to you that it is the work of the Spirit that ties all of these acts together. God's work in creation, his work in the covenants with Israel, his work in Christ, his work in the church, and eventually his work in the consummation of all things. It is the Spirit that we see showing up in similar ways over and over and over again if we have eyes to see it. The Spirit tends to enter situations that aren't fully formed and bring about a beautiful formation of the raw materials. It is the Spirit who hovers over the chaotic waters of creation, calming the foment like a mother bird quiets her young, bringing purpose and form to the creative explosion of the word. It is the Spirit who fills Moses the stammerer and makes him the spokesman for God's covenant with Israel. It is the Spirit that then fills the elders and prophets of Israel seeking to bring restoration to this garden of God that has gone awry. It is the Spirit who overshadows St. Mary, bringing forth new life just as he did over the waters of creation. It is the Spirit who descends on Christ in baptism and fills him for his ministry. And it is the Spirit who is given to the church to make her truly the mystical body of Christ on earth and the locus of new creation. He's doing the same work in echoes over and over and over again. All along the way, God in his graciousness has given the gift of being to the world and to humanity in order that we might share in his own very life to be adopted as his children and heirs. You see how scripture echoes God's activity here? The spirit midwifes the world into being. And then does the same in Christ's incarnation. And then again with the birth of the church. The breath of God that is breathed into the clay in Genesis, that becomes man, that becomes the image of God, is breathed out again by Christ upon his apostles, remaking them in the true image, the image of Christ himself, the image that had been shattered by sin and death. The bush that Moses encountered was on fire but never consumed. The pillars of fire and cloud led Israel through the wilderness, and the same bright cloud surrounds Christ and his disciples in his transfiguration. And here in our lessons this evening, the same fire that burns but does not consume is placed upon the heads of the apostles. 
signifying that the Spirit has been given to the church. And just as at Babel, when our speech was confounded and our attempts at divinity on our own terms resulted in the scattering of humanity across the earth, so now here, the Spirit forms a new people. Not a uniform people, but a unified people, a diverse yet unified people. And he begins building them up into a temple for the living God. The Spirit is the divine denouement of the entire story of God's work in the world because it is here that God's purposes are made manifest. We were always supposed to have lived in the life of God, and despite our destructive best efforts at thwarting that, God has remained unmoved in his purposes. He will not allow us to get away. As St. John the Seer records in his Apocalypse, behold, I mean, this verse in Revelation is the tying together of the whole thing. Behold, God's dwelling place is with man. This is what God is after. From the beginning to the end, to the praise of his glory that we might share in his glory until the whole earth resounds with his praise as he dwells together with his people. St. Paul gets at this all over the place in his letters. Specifically in Romans 8, he says that we have been given adoption as full heirs in the giving of the Spirit. The Spirit you received, he says, brought about your adoption to sonship, to being that firstborn, that true heir. And he says that now we can hear the entire creation groaning as in the travail of childbirth, and we ourselves groan inwardly as we await this final and full adoption with the Spirit as the first fruits of this coming reality, when all will be redeemed and renewed. The Spirit has been about the same work from the very beginning, and he continues to be about that work. And this is similarly what St. Paul's getting at in his second letter to the church at Corinth when he says, Now, If the ministry that brought death, he's he's talking about when Moses received the law on Sinai. If the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so much so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? You guys remember the story? When Moses would come back down from the mountain after talking with God, he would have to put a veil over his face because the people could not stand to look at his brightness for fear that God would strike them down. Paul says that's that's a ministry carved in stone. It has nothing compared to the glory of the ministry of the Spirit. If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, he says, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Right? The law is powerless to do anything to save you. All it can do is point out how far we've fallen and bring about condemnation. But the ministry of the Spirit brings about righteousness. He actually brings us into Christ, and we are given Christ's righteousness. For what was glorious, Paul says, has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? The ministry of the Spirit is not transitory. He goes on. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull. 
For to this day the same veil reminds when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That is way too much to unpack this evening. But suffice it to say, this glorious ministry of the Spirit is nothing less than the ministry of reconciliation and adoption into the very life of God. When Christ exaflates the Spirit upon the apostles and breathes out on them, he gives them the authority to forgive sins. But if you've read through the Gospels, then you know that only God can forgive sins. And yet here in this moment, when the Spirit is given to the church, he so fills the church that the church could become the body of Christ on earth, a mystical body, but one that acts in mission with his authority to bring about reconciliation. And so for those that have been given the Spirit, we now have authority in Christ's name to go about declaring to people that their sins can be forgiven. The glorious ministry of the Spirit that is at work in the church is a ministry of setting captives free. As it's been said, the first mission of the church to the world is its emancipation. The first mission of the church to the world is its emancipation. The gift of the Spirit to the church is not a gift that can be hoarded. We can't just keep it all to ourselves. No, the Spirit himself is a gift that brings speech to the mouth of the church to declare the wonders of God. The word that St. Luke uses here in our reading was translated as deeds of power. Sometimes it's wonders of God or the wonderful acts of God. It's the same word that Luke pens for St. Mary's song, the Magnificat, when she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, for he has done great things for me. It's the same word. Mary encounters the Spirit and then begins declaring the wonderful acts of God. Similarly, the church encounters the Spirit, and immediately they go about declaring the wonderful works of God. Can the Spirit manifest himself in ecstatic utterances, speaking in tongues, words of prophecy? Sure. But what are the tongues and prophecy and ecstatic utterances for? For showing forth the glory of God by declaring his mighty deeds that are on display for us primarily in Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. The gift of the Spirit is to put words into the mouth of the church to declare that message with joy. Last week we talked about Christ's ascension and how we have been seated up on high in Christ which is to say that the source of our life is no longer of this world. It's no longer earthly, but heavenly. And yet, here we are. We're still in the world, still longing for redemption and recreation. And it is the twinning of the ascension of Christ with the descent of the Spirit that allows us to be people who are in the world, but not of the world. 
Do you see? Because we have been seated with Christ in the heavenlies, we are no longer of this place, and yet we are still here. And as people of the Spirit, we have been given eyes to see that the world is not a mirror for our self-fascination, but is rather a window through which the glory of God shines with true illumination. It's the Spirit who gives us eyes to see that. That we cannot close off the world and become fascinated with ourselves. We are supposed to see God in and through all of it. Did you hear what Paul said to the Corinthians? Every time someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Their blindness is healed because the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There is freedom because the message of the Spirit is a message of reconciliation and forgiveness of sins. The question is, is this us? Have we allowed the fire of the Spirit to illumine us so that we can see clearly that it is for freedom that we have been set free? The Spirit has been given to the church. May we be people whose lives are marked by the rhythm of breathing in the Spirit of God and breathing out in declaring God's mighty deeds in the salvation that he has worked out for us in Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.